Just a note before we start this episode, later on you'll hear mention of how there are currently no cases of influenza in Ireland. However, since recording, some have been detected. Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what is happening with COVID in Ireland right now? Honestly, I didn't think I'd be doing another episode like this again, getting to grips with another reopening slash restriction announcement and figuring out why the trajectory of the virus is doing what it's doing. But here we are, instead of the 22nd of October being the day where everything goes back to normal, we are being urged to proceed with caution and go back to the basics of preventing getting or passing on COVID-19. So how has this happened? What do the case numbers and the hospitalization numbers tell us? Where does the vaccination program, which is doing undeniably well, fit into this narrative? Even though these questions aren't ones we wanted to be asking, I do want to hit a more positive note to start us off. There's still a lot of reopening happening on Friday. Most of the population eligible for a vaccine has received one or mostly two, and that same program is saving lives, protecting the majority from severe illness, hospitalization and death. But that's not the full story, and it's good to know what the full story is going into winter. So to fill in the hows and the whys, I'm joined by our very own producer and author of the journal's brilliant coronavirus newsletter, Nikki Ryan, and Dr. Gerald Barry, Assistant Professor of Virology at UCD. Nikki, it was all going so well. Did this sudden change in the trajectory of the disease come as a surprise even to the public health experts? Yes and no, and I'm sorry, that's a that's a very annoying answer. But as we know, it's difficult to give straightforward answers when it comes to COVID. The no is because for a long time, there had been concern over the number of people in hospital with COVID. It has remained stubbornly high, but not worryingly high since August. That's when we passed the 200 mark. HSC officials, but also some politicians mentioned previously that the levels of severe illness we were seeing were just slightly too high for comfort. We saw a dip in September, but then that quickly leveled out and the numbers started going up again. So what I'm saying there is that in general, there was a concern about the level of disease we had even before this recent spike in case numbers. We also know that case numbers would go up as we reopened. That's a given. And we also know that despite having more than 90% of adults fully vaccinated against COVID, that's not enough. And we'll, we'll chat more about that later on. The yes part of my answer is because all the mood music was actually fairly positive up until now. Obviously, the government were keen to be somewhat optimistic about the 22nd of October reopening date. But we also had Professor Philip Nolan, he's essentially Neffet's numbers man, telling RTE that Ireland was coming close to suppressing COVID. That was on the 5th of October. At that stage, however, the positivity rate was creeping up, as in more people coming forward for tests were receiving a positive result. And then the situation went south fairly quickly after that. Yeah, we used to say a week is a long time in politics, but a week in COVID is, is really a lifetime. Two, two weeks is a very long time in COVID, to be exact. Do we have any idea? You mentioned there that like, you know, there's lots of factors, but is there any idea of what the root cause might be to why we're seeing over 2000 cases now on a, on a daily basis? Well, previous spikes in case numbers could sometimes be connected to a particular outbreak, but that's not what's happening. We've also seen a rise in case numbers across all ages, and that tells us firstly, it's not those pesky younger people like it was during the summer, and secondly, it's not the older people who are vaccinated first seeing their immunity start to wane slightly. Essentially, ahead of the 22nd of October reopening, enough people started mixing more to tip the balance. 
Here's how Philip Nolan put it at the NEFIT briefing this week. We, we have seen this recent increase. It's important to note uh, that at the point that schools reopened, incidence was declining. It was declining because uh, young adults uh, were finishing out the vaccination programme. Incidents remained stable for several weeks after the reopening of schools, and then in, in late September, following events in late September, uh, case numbers began to rise very rapidly. And we're not, we're not suggesting that it's simply the, the slow return to workplaces that was announced around the 20th of September that has led to this rise. What the data tells us and the behavioural data tells us is that there are a whole set of changes in society, many of them in anticipation of the measures that were planned for the 22nd of October that meant our population behaviours began to change in late September and that triggered this latest wave of disease. It was also noted at the briefing that it's not just COVID. The winter vomiting bug is also on the increase, which shows that we are definitely mixing more than we did previously. But it's not as simple as that. At the same time, Chief Medical Officer Dr. Tony Houlihan argued that basically not only did we start mixing more, but it may have also been in riskier ways, maybe less ventilation, hand washing, mask wearing. But that's a harder element to put a fine point on. Another crucial factor is that the positivity rate started rising soon after the weather shifted and it started to feel a little bit more like autumn. People are now more likely to spend time indoors, maybe in poorly ventilated environments where an airborne virus like COVID can spread more easily. Also remember that 25% of the population aren't vaccinated. 10% of those are eligible for a vaccine but have yet to come forward. That's around 370,000 people. So that's a fair whack of people who, unless they were previously infected, have no protection against COVID. So a lot of the last 18 months has been the population as a whole trying to protect the health system. When we see rising case numbers, we see rising hospitalizations. What types of pressures are hospitals under right now? I suppose firstly, we should say the hospitals had a very, very busy summer. Elective and routine care resumed earlier in the year after the winter lockdown. And then on top of that and COVID, emergency care was very, very busy. Levels that were actually quite unexpected. Now they're having to deal with a growing number of COVID patients on top of all that. And you have to remember that people with COVID in hospital have a big impact because of the amount of infection control procedures that need to be put in place. I don't want to give exact numbers as they're constantly changing, but at the time of recording, we have more than 450 people in hospital with COVID. That's heading towards 500. And we have more than 80 people receiving intensive care. And that number is also has been creeping up. We are likely very, very close to some hospitals maybe having to start consider activating surge capacity or at least starting to open up more ICU beds than they have since the start of the year as they need to ensure that beds are available for both COVID and non-COVID patients. I also want to mention that we thankfully have no detectable levels of flu in circulation right now. That's something which could cause problems down the line like it did in the before times, before COVID. So if you're listening to this and think, oh God, that doesn't sound good, you can go get your flu vaccine. It's free for certain people. It has a small charge for others. It's safe, it's effective, it's quick, it's easy. And for the same reasons that we got the COVID vaccine, the more people who have it, the more of a benefit we'll feel from that. On the COVID patients who are in hospital, you mentioned earlier that we have about 300,000 people who are completely unvaccinated and about 70,000 people who've only got one dose. Can you explain on the numbers just how much of an outsized impact those unvaccinated people are having on the hospitalization numbers? So look, 
simply put, we have roughly 25% of the entire population who are unvaccinated. Children can't get a vaccine right now. Teenagers can, but they're still far less likely to become severely ill with COVID than adults. So if we only look at adults, 6% are unvaccinated, 94% are fully vaccinated. So that 6% number, that's still responsible for half hospitalizations and roughly 70% of intensive care admissions. And then this is not in any way to play down the remaining cases. If anything, it's a reminder that we still need to look out for each other. But most of the fully vaccinated people in intensive care have an underlying condition. In terms of case numbers alone, it's 50-50. But remember, you're not seeing the infections that didn't develop because the person was fully vaccinated. Yeah, when we were planning October 22nd, I don't think anyone thought it would just, you know, flick a switch and we'd go immediately back to what we were doing in December 2019. Um, But we did think we'd probably have less restrictions in our lives. But, you know, this week we heard from Michal Martin, the Taoiseach, that COVID passes will continue, that mask wearing will continue, that there will still be a, a proceed with caution. So we still have to be very aware of this virus. We have to be very aware not to not to try and pass it on or to catch it ourselves. But was there anything in this new reopening plan that was brand new to all of us that we should all be aware of? Well, I want to focus on antigen tests because for the first time they're being used as part of the frontline testing regime in Ireland. A quick reminder that these are the tests that you can pick up in many shops right now. You can administer them yourself and get a result in about 15 minutes. They're very good at catching cases that have a high viral load. So usually people who are symptomatic, although you can sometimes have a high viral load when you're asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic, and that's when you're most likely to spread the virus to other people. So they have a lot of use there. Right now in Ireland, the primary test we use is a PCR test. Um, They're favoured by health authorities because they are 99.9% accurate. Antigen tests, you know, you're talking about usually less than 90%, sometimes less than 80%, lower if there's some user error involved. But PCR tests, although they are very accurate and you can identify a case early, isolate that person before they develop symptoms or develop a high viral load and can spread it to other people, they are expensive and they take time to process. So it's sometimes seen seen as though Neffet have hated antigen tests, but really you know, they didn't just see the utility in using them in a widespread way. And, you know, people would argue that maybe that's the wrong approach. But anyway, what they've now recommended is that fully vaccinated people who don't have symptoms, but have been deemed a close contact, they will be sent out an antigen test to take at home. And then if it's positive, they can go get a PCR test to confirm beyond any doubt that it is a COVID infection. This kind of ties in with their previous thinking on antigen tests, as in that it could be used to supplement our testing regime rather than being a core element of it. Um, the government are also eager to expand the use of antigen tests, but look, we've been hearing that since the year dot, so I'm not holding out much hope in that regard, but they do seem very keen to roll them out in some wider way, like other countries have. Yeah, so antigen tests might be part of it. We know COVID passes are part of it. We know that this is kind of what, where we're at until spring 2022, so February 2022. What will those months look like? Well, look, you're right to say that we need to be positive because a lot of society is reopening on Friday. We're going to have a lot more opportunities and that may almost be missed in the fact that we're not doing everything. But beyond that, it looks uncertain, very, very uncertain. Actually, Philip Nolan said it was absolutely uncertain because it depends on everyone's behaviour over the coming weeks. 
We could see cases start to decline if everyone acts a bit more cautiously over the coming weeks, but equally they could keep going up as well if, you know, people, shall we say, embrace the reopening a bit more than is appropriate. There is an appropriate level. We need to be clear on that. Beyond that, we can expect to see a renewed focus on the basics of ventilation, mask wearing and so on, a drive to get more people vaccinated and more enforcement of the COVID pass. If cases keep going up and if our healthcare system comes under more pressure, it doesn't mean we're going to go straight into lockdown. It's it's very, very, very unlikely. We may need more lighter restrictions or maybe we'll get some very stern warnings to be on our absolute best behaviour. Because, you know, as much as we might want to reopen, hospital beds are a finite resource and there are an awful lot of people sick for reasons other than COVID. If we can hobble, stride, whatever, through the winter, depending on how it goes, to the next reopening date without any further complications, we'll be doing very, very well. But look, sure, Tony Hulahan said he's staying positive, so we we may as well stay positive as well. Yeah, and after a year and a half, we, we kind of need that positivity. I need a virologist here now, so Gerald, the big question that many people are asking is how are we in the situation when we actually do have more than 90% of adults in the population fully vaccinated? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think there's probably a lot of moaning and groaning going on in the general population um, and not just the general population, but scientists and medics across the country at this stage. Um, You know, we were kind of sold the idea, I think, that if we got high levels of vaccination, that that this problem will go away. Um, And that was probably right to an extent in that vaccination gives incredible protection against severe illness and hospitalization. But the reality of what we learned over over the last six to nine months is that um, these vaccines don't give complete protection against infection. And so when you have high case numbers across the country, the the fact is that the virus is, is plentiful and people are being exposed to it. And even if you are vaccinated, you know, by about six months after your second shot, that protection against infection drops quite substantially. Um, And so we can't really kind of rely on the vaccine to solve all our problems. It's doing an amazing job of protecting us against from uh, from massive numbers of hospitalizations, massive numbers of deaths, thankfully, because if we didn't have vaccine and we were running at this case number, uh, you know, our our health system would be in tatters, to put it bluntly. So the vaccine is is creating a barrier to an extent, but it's not going to solve all the problems. It doesn't. Um, do a brilliant job at protecting against infection. And then once you start getting infections at high rates, you know, it's a bit like bombarding a house or or a military base with bombs. Eventually that base will crack and and some some virus will get through. And, and people, even if they're vaccinated, unfortunately, will get sick because, you know, when people are vaccinated, not everyone reacts to the vaccine perfectly. There are varying levels of response to it. That's dictated by how good your immune response is, but also things like your age, for example. Um, We know that in older people, for example, the immune response to vaccines is not quite as strong as maybe somebody in their 20s or 30s. And when you bombard those populations with virus, as we're doing in the country at the moment, inevitably case numbers are going to go up. And unfortunately, we're going to get leakage through into hospitalization and severe illness. Um, and that's kind of the reality. And, and that's, in a way, the flaw of the promise and the flaw of the approach, I think, up to now, is that we have placed all our hope 
um, on a, at least on a government policy level, all hope has been placed in the vaccine solving all problems. And I think it's very clear from what's happened in the last few weeks that that hope was misplaced um, to a large extent. And there's lots more that needs to be done um, to actually control this virus, unfortunately. It was probably a, an understandable hope, but from your position with your expertise, are you surprised by how the virus is behaving with this level of vaccine coverage, or is it something that's always possible? No, I think every vaccine is different, but unfortunately, you know, the virus we're dealing with is, is you well, it's not completely unique, but it's in a unique group of viruses in the sense that um, its ability to transmit between people um, is definitely at the upper end in terms of viruses. And, you know, so it's a very aggressive virus. Um, it has amazing ability to move in populations of people much more than, you know, say influenza that we're dealing with on, a, on an annual basis. And so it, it's, you add that kind of aggressive nature and then its ability to cause disease. Um, and it just creates a cocktail whereby even incredibly high vaccination levels are not going to be enough because in an ideal world, the vaccine would block infection as well as blocking um, severe illness. And initially, when you get the vaccine, it does a really good job at all those things. Um, and I think the hope was that that um, would maintain. But evidence coming out of a number of countries, including the UK, America the U and, and Israel, is that, as I say, within about six months, that blockage of infection um, starts to reduce quite substantially. Um, and, and people are now becoming vulnerable to infection again, unfortunately. Yeah, because of that, a big focus has been put on booster shots for people with healthy immune systems. How effective could they be in keeping this new wave of infection under control? Yeah, I think, you know, boosters are kind of a challenging topic, I think, because ultimately the most vulnerable people are those that don't have any vaccine at all. Um, and there's, you know, a large number of people in this country that haven't had their vaccine yet. And there are millions of people across the world that have no access to vaccine. And, you know, really on a global scale, we should be prioritizing those people. Essentially what happens is when you get the vaccine initially, your body drives a huge level of antibodies systemically. And so that creates this incredible layer of protection in your body. But over time, naturally, as happens with almost every vaccine, those antibody levels will drop off, but your body keeps a memory of the infection. And so if an infection comes along again, that initial infection might be allowed to happen, but your body then starts to pump out antibodies in response to it. It does it really quickly because it has learned previously because the vaccine has trained it to respond in a really precise way and, and it blocks for the most part severe illness. You know, over time, those antibodies will drop away. And if we boost, all the booster will do is drive those antibody levels up again. The fear is, I suppose, we just don't know how long that'll last for, essentially. So in the short term, a booster is a good idea, I think, particularly in vulnerable groups, because the winter is going to be really difficult. And we need that extra layer because what we're doing currently is not good enough to stop this virus spreading in the population. So I think we need that extra layer, particularly in vulnerable groups, um, to try and protect them from infection. I suppose the concern really would be that, um, is that going to be enough to protect the whole population? And also how long will that booster impact last for? Potentially in another three to six months, we're gonna be looking at another booster if nothing else changes. 
Nikki, the booster shots for people, it was a big part of the political response to this. I know you've been following what Neffet have been saying about waning immunity. What can you tell us about the, the, the various points of view that we've heard on that? Well, the the main element here is that Gerald is is quite right. You know, obviously he's a virologist; he's going to be right, right about this. Uh, not, not necessarily. <laughs> but the, we know from studies in other countries that immunity does wane. There've been several studies done on this, but right now in Ireland, um, Neffet have seen no evidence that the waning immunity is part of this recent rise in case numbers, and that's largely based on when you look at the age breakdown that. You would presume that if it was due to waning immunity that you would start to see it in the people who are vaccinated first, so the over 85s and the over 60s um, and also healthcare workers. But instead, we're seeing it rise across all age groups, which means that infection levels are rising regardless across the country. Now, that doesn't detract from the point that if we are seeing that there are going to be some people in the community who are not as well protected, still have a very, very strong level of protection against severe illness and death, but may not have as strong protection against infection as they did, you know, during the summer. Um, So it's a complicated picture, but right now it's not seen as a driving force behind this wave of infection. But politically, it was very important to get those those booster shots out. Yes, that's it, because, well, you know, you could argue that it is a very um, straightforward way of responding to what's going on. Obviously, booster shots are a very controversial element. This is for booster shots for people with normal immune systems. The World Health Organization would rather you give people who are immunocompromised an extra dose and maybe donate the spare doses that you have to the COVAX scheme that distributes vaccines around the world. But it is core part of the response. Um, NIAC, who advised the government on vaccines, have now recommended that you can administer booster shots to the over 60s. So they're putting a lot of drive behind this new booster campaign. Gerald, we all kind of remember back when Delta, the Delta variant was emerging and we were getting really worried. How much has the that moved the dial here? Like, could vaccines have more effectively stopped the pandemic if another variant was our main concern? Like the uh, the previous, I think it was Alpha, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was Alpha. Yeah, it was the dominant. Yeah, I think absolutely Delta has, has changed the picture uh, almost completely. Um, we know Delta is incredibly aggressive, probably twice as aggressive in terms of transmission um, compared to the original strain. And, you know, although it doesn't sound like a huge amount, you know, that jump in transmissibility is actually massive on a population scale. And so there's no doubt Delta has really changed the picture completely. You know, if you look at Israel, for example, and you look at the vaccine campaign they had, you know, they were starting to open up um, very much so around kind of April time. And it was only really when Delta came into the picture in Israel that they started to have problems again. Uh, You know, so it suggested at least that vaccination was capable of controlling the alpha variant. I think the the point really would be that the ability to protect the population or what's known as herd immunity is based on a number of factors, but one of the key ones is how transmissible the virus is, how quickly and how efficiently can the virus get from one person to another. And if in a way the vaccine can't stay ahead of that, then it's not going to be able to stop it. And really with Delta, it's at such a high level of transmissibility, you really need to almost vaccinate the whole population. And arguably, that's not even going to be enough because of the impact of things like 
uh, reduction in protection against infection, um, one would almost need to maintain a super high level of antibody in the whole, in the total population or look across the whole world and try and vaccinate the whole world to globally dampen down the virus so that we get a you know and so that we kind of i suppose put a pin in introducing the virus constantly from abroad at the same time so it, there's no doubt delta has changed the dial on this whole conversation and and really just to you know throw into the mix the the likelihood is that we're going to see other variants coming out. Um, how quickly that will come is very difficult to predict. But, you know, if you look across the world, there are different variants popping up all the time. But again, going back to this idea that while vaccination is amazing, it isn't the only solution to this. And, and this really has to be a multi-layered approach to controlling this um, pandemic. We've been talking about Delta there and how it has moved the dial the vaccinations we know, even against Delta, are very, very effective against um, severe illness, hospitalization and death, but they're not as effective for infection. Are second generation vaccines in development that actually could be more effective against infection? Yes, very much so. And, and that is the goal. So um, ideally, what we would do is, in a way, try and promote immunity in the upper respiratory tract. So there's um, vaccines in development, for example, that will be intranasally administered so you would boost directly into the nose and so you try and create an immunity within the nose and the um, upper respiratory tract so that that entry point for the virus is the first thing that the immune system sees and reacts really strongly against it and arguably a combination of approaches whereby we boost the body to protect against severe illness and then boost the upper respiratory tract the nasal passage effectively to protect against infection um, would be in a, an ideal scenario because you want to try and hit both. You want to try and stop severe illness, but ideally you want to try and stop infection as well because that will massively reduce the ability to uh, for onward transmission. And that ultimately is what's going to put a stop to this. And yes, there's a lot of work ongoing. Nothing has come yet, but there is a lot of work ongoing to try and to try and create something that will do that. You mentioned earlier that elusive idea of herd immunity. Is anything close to herd immunity possible in even the next year? I think with the vaccines we have at the moment, it's unlikely, unfortunately. Um, I think if we vaccinated the whole population, including every child, um, then potentially. But as I say, with the evidence suggesting that over time protection against infection reduces, even though people would be protected against severe illness, the likelihood of stopping transmission of the virus just through the use of vaccines um, at this stage appears unlikely. Now, as I say, if you were to achieve massive levels of vaccination across the whole world, such that the, the reservoir of virus would reduce globally, then potentially you might run into a scenario where you're reducing the introduction or constant reintroduction of virus into the country. And that could be something that could achieve so a level of herd immunity, I suppose. But in the short term, I think it's unlikely to, to happen based on the vaccines that we have at the moment. Yeah, particularly because we we still have that 300,000 people um, still needing a vaccine in Ireland. Nikki, you can still get a vaccine, right? They're free and easy. How do you get one if you haven't got one yet? 
you absolutely can still get a vaccine. Um, there is no issue with supply reading in Ireland right now. We have a lot of vaccines. Um, it's mostly the two mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna. You can go onto HSC website still and register. You There are also details there of the various walk-in centres when they're open and you can still go along. No one's going to be judgy that you're late getting to it because it's better for everyone that even if, you know, better late than never really. They are still free and um, still easy to get and we know for sure now that they are safe and effective to, oh, and we've discussed the limitations in them in this podcast, but we still know that they are by standards of other vaccines very very effective great thanks so much nikki for doing your double jobbing again today and gerald for joining us on the explainer thank you for listening to the explainer and a big thank you to nikki and gerald for joining us this episode of the explainer was brought to you by producers nikki ryan and Eva barry it's always lovely to talk to nikki on air as he double jobs and you can sign up to his newsletter on the coronavirus at the end of any article about covid19 if you want to support The Explainer, there's a few things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber, or you can leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's actually a brilliant way to make sure other people can discover, listen, and love it too. Thank you and catch you next time.